Heavenly Father, as we once again come to your word, um, may all things be for the glory of, of Jesus Christ. We are reminded once again um, that all that we do is in service of the gospel. Uh, Lord, may your words, written on a page, inspired by your spirit, read by your church today, um, become more than just those written words, but they might reveal to us the living word, Jesus Christ see our purpose and our role in him, in his church, in the world, um, for the work of the gospel. We pray all of this through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. We're going to be uh, looking at the book of Colossians chapter 1 again. We're, we're working our way through Colossians 1 and considering uh, the gospel. What is the gospel? And over the last few weeks, we've talked about um, the gospel being revealed Right? That the, the word of God is revealed, the, 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 the good news of Jesus Christ is revealed to us. We've talked about it being an expression of grace. When the sovereign who owes me nothing gives me everything, it is an act of grace. That we are not entitled to uh, the, the gospel, but rather the gospel is given to us by his sovereignty. And, and last week we talked about uh, ministry and, and our purpose in the gospel, that we are called as a church, we are called not just to, um, to do the gospel out, you know, wherever, but rather as a church to be molded by the gospel, to be working together and serving in the purposes of the gospel. And today I want to uh, look at a, a word, an idea that um, I think so often in, in the Christian circles we we, we read and we think we know what it means, and, and maybe you do, um, but we want to go over it again and, and be reminded of the nature of it. Um, and so Colossians chapter 1, and uh, I'm eventually going to get used to being older. It's going to take me a while, but I'm, I should, uh, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this one, right? Yeah. All right. So Colossians chapter 1. Uh, and we're going to start in, in verse 9, uh, just because that's where the sentence, the, 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 the little the, the thought comes from. So from the day we heard, so this is Paul talking um, about the Colossians, this church in Colossae. Uh, so from the day we heard about you, we've not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of of sins. Now, I, I want to just real quickly, uh, I want to point out that the way that Paul structured the, structures this this sentence, this this statement, and I think it's uh, it's worth noting just so we're aware that the way that he fun he structures this is he's going to work from the outside in, uh, and Paul does this quite often, and, and it leads to a little bit of confusion about what he's teaching in particular situations because you see a statement about something like. Um, you know, I want you to walk in verse 10 so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. And so people read that walk in a manner worthy of the Lord and they go, okay, so this is a passage about my behavior, about my ethics, about my, my actions. 
And it is about our actions, but Paul starts with this idea of us walking worthy of the Lord, but he's going to go deeper into where that comes from. And I mentioned uh, last week that often the work of the gospel starts on the outside, works to the inside, then works back out to the outside. So, so as, God, uh, as God transforms us, it starts on the outside, works in, comes back out. And I think, I think that's kind of true of anything, right? If you've ever learned a skill, um, if you've ever acquired a particular skill, uh, particularly in the trades, like electrical work or, or HVAC or something like that, you start out by just replicating the actions of the person that's teaching you. You just do this thing. And then eventually it gets into you, and then it flows out of you, and you're able to do that thing um, on your own, uh, in your own, uh, in your own idiom. Uh, I'm reminded of uh, when I was young, I was in uh, Civil Air Patrol, which is Auxiliary of the Air Force, um, because I intended to go into the military, kill people and break things. That was my, my life motivation. Um, God obviously changed that around a little bit, but that was, uh, that was what I wanted to do. I was a very ar- angry young man, um, and I thought that was a great idea to go and get paid to break stuff. I mean, how, how can you fault that? And it's all terrorist stuff, so it's easy, right? You should be breaking uh, bad people's stuff. Um, and so I was in Civil Air Patrol because uh, that was the only like military training that was available in the area. Um, and, uh, and so I, I started to learn how to do all the drills, all the steps, all the walking. Now, if, you've, um, if you're a left-handed person and you operate in a world where everything is right-handed... Um, you start to really discover uh, how wrong the rest of the world is, right? Um, you know, uh, they just, they operate, uh, they, they start with the wrong foot, you know? It's just, it's the way it is. Um, and so I had to learn how to, how to march thinking of the right foot first, right? Um, I had to learn to turn and think and, and the way that you carry a rifle and how you wear your equipment. It's all right-handed. It's all right-handed. Um, and, and it's frustrating. Uh, but eventually, you, you get to a point where you just keep drilling. That's that's reason they call it drill. You're drilling and drilling and drilling until it becomes just second nature. And then you're almost able to anticipate what you're doing because it's so built into you. It's so, it's so drilled down into the, the layer of you. And the gospel works in a similar way. We start with the outside and then it works into us and then it starts to transform us inside, which then transforms our outside. That's why sometimes if, if I see somebody, um, and, and uh, this is not citing anybody specific, but when, when someone is exactly the same person, they, were, um, they became a Christian and they were this person, and, and they had a certain values, behaviors, actions. And then five years down the road, uh, they're still a Christian, but they're still doing exactly the same behaviors and actions. You kind of look at them and go, is there anything getting beyond the surface, down to the center of you? Because no matter what it is, the more you're in something, it changes how you act, how you think. And that should be um, infinitely true of the work of the gospel. Anyway, he's talking about uh, he starts talking about this this walking, right? So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. And, and we read that and we go, okay, this is a passage about us learning how to be good Christians. But when we get deeper, we find out that there is actually a, an extremely important change or transfer that happens that creates that behavior. Um, in verse 12, he says, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. And that line, he has qualified you um, to to, uh, participate, all right? 
he has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the holy ones, the saints, in light. That is a statement of a transformation that occurs uh, at the hand of God, not you. That there is something that happens, and then he describes that something in verse 13. He says, he has delivered us from the domain, the, the word is ekousia, the authority or the control of darkness, and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved uh, son. Now, when we first read that line, um, now, when I was a kid, um, there was the word transformed in there, and I was a kid in the 80s, and the Transformers were big toys, so I had a very different interpretation of being transformed into uh, the kingdom of light, um, but uh, of kingdom of his beloved son. But when we read this, I want you to remember the context of this letter and the person who is carrying this letter. So I mentioned last week that Epaphras um, is a diminutive word of Epaphroditus or Epaphroditus. And so it is possible that the person that um, brought this message to Paul uh, was a slave. But the person that was taking the message back to the Colossians was a guy named Onesimus. And Onesimus absolutely was a slave. And so when we read this passage, I want you to think about What's going on when we read this statement delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his son? I mentioned that the word, uh, the, the word domain is the word ekousia. This is, a, uh, this is a, a past authority. This is an authority delegated to a representative or a person. Uh, when, we, when we read in Matthew 28, Jesus says, uh, all power is given unto me in heaven and on earth. That's the word ekousia, all right? Um, it, is, it is this idea of a, of a power that is given from one authority to a lesser authority. And the power of ownership uh, for a slave master was an ekousia. It was an authority that was granted by the government that for your ability to own slaves. Certain kinds of people could not own slaves in the Greco-Roman world. Um, it, it was it, now men and women were allowed to slay, own slaves. Children could not own slaves, um, and and slaves couldn't own slaves. All right, uh, that kind of makes sense. Um, but uh, but this there was this idea that the government actually set parameters, and then within those parameters there was an authority over the work being done by that slave. Uh, that slave was obligated to serve the authority of his master. So when we read this, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness. He has delivered us from the, the uh, acousia, excusia, all right? um, this uh, power of darkness or this control, this authority. He has delivered you and he has transferred you to what? To the kingdom of his beloved son. Now, in the Western Roman Empire, no one ever talked about the empire being a kingdom. That was anathema. You did, Romans were allergic to the word king. 
All right. In, in Italy, you never mentioned a king unless you wanted to be killed. That was how it worked. I would like to be king, dead. All right. That's how the Romans were allergic. They had overthrown their king uh, very early on in their history, and they refused to have kings. So they could have commanding generals who had complete and absolute authority and were kings in everything um, but name, but they were not kings. Uh, they could have tyrants or despots that were appointed temporarily with absolute authority, but they weren't kings. Julius Caesar was not a king. In Italy, uh, Octavius Caesar, Augustus, was not a king. But in Greece, and the Greek-speaking part of the empire, which was actually the larger part of the empire, uh, he was often called a king. He was often called uh, Sebasti, the Sebasti Basile, the, 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 uh, the august king. All right? Um, this was his title was stamped on money. You just didn't spend that money in Italy because if it was spent in Italy and so it caught on that he was being called a king, everybody got upset. Um, so when we talk about that kingdom transferred to the kingdom of his beloved son, Paul is making a very strong difference between the relationship of a slave under the authority of darkness and a freed citizen of the kingdom of Jesus. Now, all of that authority of darkness, and this is sometimes weird to get your head around, that authority was delegated to the darkness by God. Now, I'm not going to claim to understand it, how it works, but if God is sovereign of all, he's God, he is sovereign of all. And so... Um, for some reason, he has granted authority to darkness over the world and over sin for a time. But ultimately, uh, the, when we are transferred to the kingdom of his beloved son, we are removed from the authority of that darkness. We are removed from the slavery of that darkness. We are redeemed. And here's where this um, moment comes in. Verse 14. Um, speaking of Jesus, a beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now, this is a fascinating idea, this redemption. Now, here Paul will equate redemption with the forgiveness of sins. Um, in, in Ephesians 1, 7, Ephesians and Colossians are kind of parallel. They're very similar. They have a lot of the same terminology. In Ephesians 1, 7, um, it speaks of redemption as an act of grace. We had mentioned that the gospel is an act of grace. Ephesians 4, 30, um, it describes uh, redemption as an act of, or a work of the Spirit of God. So we have the, the, all three members of the Godhead, the Father, um, the Father who is uh, enabling us to do this, Jesus who is redeeming us, and the Holy Spirit who is the means by which it happens. And there's a lot of theology built into that. But this idea of redemption uh, is fascinating to me because um, it took two very different forms in the early church. We're talking, you know, two, three, four hundred, five hundred, six hundred A.D. Um, actually, a little bit later than that. In, in the Western church, the idea of redemption really started, really took on the shape of ownership. Now, there's a lot of reasons for this. The primary reason for it is the, is the nature of how medieval Europe worked. In medieval Europe, everybody owned something. Ownership was very important. Um, and so the king kind of owned the whole kingdom, 
And then dukes and earls and, and marquesses and all those other things, they would have property and they would swear fealty to the king. And then lesser nobles would swear fealty to those nobles. And then, and then at, at the bottom was, you know, us, right? Whose job was to work the soil and then be buried in it, you know? Um, none of us were going to be nobles in the Middle Ages, I think. Um, but, uh, you know, and all these nobles, what you did was there was, there was literally ownership. So if you were a serf, all right, not S-U-R-F, all right, but S-E-R-F, um, or a villain, all right, V-I-L-L-E-I-N, not V-I-L-L-A-I-N. That's a villain. That's like Maleficent and Ursula and, you know, Disney. But a villain is somebody who lived around a, a villa, V-I-L-L-A, or castle, all right? So if you were a serf or a peasant or a villain um, uh, and, uh, and, you lived, and you lived on land, you could not just go down the, down the street to the next town. You had to get permission from your, your fealty lord. He owned your time. Even though you weren't a slave, you kind of were. He owned your, your time. He owned your produce. You, you were required to pay a certain amount of, of your grain in tithe to the church if you lived on church land, because churches owned a lot of the land, um, or to your lord. And that grain was supposed to be used by that lord to, to, uh, to uh, feed soldiers who then protected you. There was this complicated system known as feudalism and this interlocking layers of vows and and all that kind of stuff that, and, and now if you've ever, you know, you guys have all heard of Robin Hood, right? Uh, hopefully, if you haven't heard about Robin Hood, you, you really need to. Um, but of course, who's the bad guy in Robin Hood? The Sheriff of Nottingham, who does he work for? All right, the king, which king? Who is it usually? It's usually Prince John. It's usually Prince John. Poor John. John, John gets a bad rap. I mean, he was a terrible king, but he gets a bad rap. Because he gets keep getting thrown into these Robin Hood stories. He really had nothing to do with that. He was Richard Coeur de Leon. Uh, he was Richard III's uh, younger brother. Richard went off to crusade. He left John in charge. And Richard, Richard, <laughs> Richard the Lionhearted just had this ability to get imprisoned. He was always in jail, and John was always bailing him out. And in order to bail him out, uh, John was constantly mortgaging things, selling off land. Anyway, John uh, actually managed to be, this is, this is interesting. So John was the Duke of Normandy, which is part of France, right? And it's complicated, William the Conqueror, all that stuff. Anyway, he's the Duke of Normandy, so it's part of France. So John started a war with the King of France, but then had to actually pay because he, he was... Uh, sworn fealty to the king of France, while he was fighting the king of France, he was paying uh, uh, money to the king of France to finance the armies that were fighting John. All right, because of these complicated interac interactions. Um, and there's, there's one guy called, uh, um, I can't remember his name, but he was, he was the Earl of, of Cousy. Um, and during, during these wars, he actually switched sides like seven times. To one point, he couldn't keep track who he was supposed to be paying what to. Um, because there were all these fealty lords and all kinds of weird stuff that worked on. Thankfully, we got rid of all that. Now, now we just get a notice from the IRS in February. We fill a form out. We find out how much money we owe to our fealty lords. Um, but th this, uh, th this really complicated thing, it bled into our theology. And so when we think of redemption, we always think of it as a financial transaction. We read the Bible and we go, okay, I have sin in my ledger 
And this, by the way, is not completely inaccurate. It's not that it's false. It is in the Bible. The, the word justification has to do with this particular image that I'm going to explain. I have sin in my ledger, and Jesus has righteousness. Jesus purchases me, forgives my sin, and the, the word is impute. All right? He imputes his righteousness to me. He literally writes his righteousness on my ledger. Now, that's a part of the imagery of redemption. So there is, it's not false, it is an aspect of it, but it's very financial. And so we have this, um, this discussion about, you know, Jesus basically purchasing us. And who did he purchase us from? Then there's theologians get arguing about, oh, he purchased them from Satan, he purchased from God the Father, he purchased from himself, he purchased us from each other. I'm not going to get into all that. There's all kinds of theological nuances, you know, uh, ask a question with three theologians in, the, in a room, you'll have seven answers in a lawsuit. Um, but the, this, this kind of aspect of it's all about purchase. And so when we read redemption, we think Jesus buys me. He purchases me out of darkness. The Hebrew Bible actually has a very different idea. The Old Testament actually has a very different idea of redemption. It is the idea, things that are redeemed are things that God has a title to that he allows us to keep. Now, that's, a, that's not something we think about redemption, but if you read the, the, the law codes, you find that the firstborn of everything in your household is supposed to be owed to God. That means your firstborn son, not your daughters for some reason, only sons, um, but your firstborn son, you were supposed to give him to the temple. God, God, you owed him to God. Now, some of you have been like, man, it would have been a lot easier if I could have just dropped him off at church <laughs> and just picked him up later, you know. Um, but that was the idea was, and, and then what you did was you redeemed that son. You, you made a sacrifice and God gave you back your child. Now, now you go, all right, that sounds really weird. Well, you know, a lot of stuff about the, the, the Old Testament is weird. You can just get used to it. Um, but the, but this idea of redemption is that God gives me back something. He hands me back, hands something back to me that belongs to him. And when we read this redemption, when we read uh, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, we should be reminded that our eternal fate, our uh, judgment, uh, our place, all right, it's determined by God. God is the judge of the quick and the dead. And, and, and so many people walk around going, well, if I do enough good things... I will earn my way into heaven. That's not how it works because it's not your choice. It's not your power. You, you weigh the balances and if I could just tweak it out to good, you know, God is obligated to take care of me. You're not in charge of this. God decides what is righteousness and unrighteousness. He decides what the standard is. He has established it. In Romans 3, he says there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that seeks after God. We have all gone astray. He talks about us as, land, as, as sheep who have gone astray. He describes us as, in Romans 7, he describes us in, in this way that we, there are things we want to do that are righteous. We wind up not doing them. There are unrighteous things we, wind, we don't want to do and we wind up doing them. We are not in charge of deciding whether we are good enough or not. But God gives us back what we cannot earn for ourselves. Lives, hopes, dreams. 
You realize that every breath you, ble- you breathe, when you read the book of Colossians, and when, or when you read Paul and he talks about that God, Jesus sustains all things, every breath you breathe is grace from God. He doesn't have to let you live. He chooses to let you live. He doesn't have to give you uh, blessings. He doesn't have to provide for you. Uh, We have this tendency, we are so selfish, we have a tendency to think that we are entitled to things, that we have rights before God. We do not. We have grace before God. And we think of buying it back. The Greek word that underlies this is actually the idea of releasing something to be free. That the redemption, when God forgives our sins, when Jesus, who died for our sins, when forgiveness is given to us, He does not bind us. He frees us. But He doesn't free us to be whatever we want to be. He frees us to live in the kingdom of His beloved Son. Now, what do you call somebody who lives in a kingdom but... but, um, refuses to follow the authority of the king. What do we call that person? Robin Hood. An outlaw, a rebel, a troublemaker, a traitor. We are freed to the kingdom of his beloved son. We are freed to live as saints in the light. We are freed from the darkness When we come to faith in Jesus, the gospel uh, removes the authority of darkness, transfers us to the kingdom of His Son, redeems us and frees us to live. Jesus said, I came to give you life, and that more abundantly. In other words, what you think is life, I want to give you more than you could ever imagine. But if that is true, then guess what? And let's work our way back up the passage. If that is true, if God in His grace and His mercy has transferred us, He has forgiven us, He has freed us, then guess what? Uh, We, as we're working back, need to remember that Jesus is King. We need to remember that the inheritance we have is a gift from the Father. We need to understand that as sinners, as we go backwards to verse 11, we need to understand that as sinners, we need to be strengthened in His power in order to be the men and women that He calls us to be. That it's not going to be a natural thing. You're not going to wake up one day and be a good Christian. I tried. It doesn't work. I I literally, uh, my wife will tell you when we met, I was one of the biggest reprobates on the college campus. Now, it was a Christian college, so that doesn't say much. You know, like reprobate on college campus means like not occasionally, not, you know, occasionally jaywalking, you know, um, causing trouble. But I, I was well known. I actually, I actually got suspended from school for breaking the rules my freshman year. But my dad was a professor. They suspended me for the summer. I'm not sure that was a good choice. Um, but anyway, um, I, I, I lived off of campus. I was well known for, for causing trouble. I was well known for bucking trends. And one day, uh, God got a hold of me during the summer between my, my sophomore year and my junior year. God got a hold of me, and I just said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be a better Christian. I'm going to be a better religion. You know, I'm going to fill in the blanks. I'm going to do all this stuff. Um, and, and I said, I'm just going to make this choice, and I'm going to do this thing. And I discovered that that is a terrible way to live as a Christian. Because when you are totally reliant upon your own ability to do it, 
when you are constantly, you know, just, just relying on your own strength, every once in a while, problems happen. Um, I, I think I've told this story. I, I, I cannot stand inane debate. I love intelligent conversations. I cannot stand debate about things that I think don't matter. Now, they may actually matter, but I just, I just don't think they do. And it's just my, my personal nature. So I'm sitting in a class on the book of Hebrews, and they're debating, and I swear some of my, co- my, my colleagues, my peers, were just doing this to avoid getting more information given to them in class. They were debating on the character of Melchizedek. Now, I'm not going to get into the whole thing, argument about it, but there's a big argument about whether Melchizedek was the pre-incarnate Jesus or not. He's in the book of Genesis. He talks to Abraham. There's a big passage in Hebrews. They are arguing. They are arguing. I think I've told this story. I stood up in the middle of class. I was so frustrated because I wanted to either end the class and go do something else um, or, or get onto more content. I stood up and declared Melchizedek the fourth member of the Godhead. He would be worshipped with pizza and beer on Tuesday nights. Now, the best part about it was that my professor laughed so hard he fell out of his seat because he knew I was joking around. Everybody else was mortified that I had done this thing. I'm like, you, you're espousing apostasy. My professor's going, obviously, he's not. All right. But, um, but it was just, I was, I was so frustrated. And, and relying on myself, I get, when I'm relying on myself, I get so frustrated when things don't go my way. I get so annoyed. I have zero patience. I get angry. I start yelling. I start bashing things. My wife can always tell when I have been pushed into my own ability because things are getting slammed and broken and all kinds of stuff. Hopefully those are rare. I don't know. You'll have to talk to her. But when we are understanding that as members of the kingdom of God, God will give us the strength to endure, the patience to go through. When, when we understand that uh, what we have to do, we have endurance and patience. We can celebrate the things that we endure because God strengthen us, strengthens us to go through them. We can walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, not of our own ability, but beginning with understanding our redemption and freedom we have in Christ. And and the question I would ask, all right, the question that I would leave you with, when we think, when you think of the gospel, when you think of redemption, does does your, your brain stop at the topic of forgiveness of sins and then believe that everything else is up to you. Jesus forgives your sins and now you have to live a Christian life. Or as you, as you learn to walk, as you study the scriptures, as you get deeper, are you learning to find the things that God is using to strengthen you, to empower you, to free you, to enlighten your path? So often we fall back on Jesus, save me, now I'm required to live. I have this transaction, it's done, and now it's just me. And, and I would call that, I would actually call that um, a, a Christian, in quotation marks, atheism. That Jesus saves me, and then it's all up to me, that is not believing in the God of the Bible. It is believing instead is God being a uh, basically spiritual whiteout, giving you a fresh start, and then it's all up to you. Man, if that's all that God did, 
He just went, okay, Eric, let's try this again. I immediately blew it. I've immediately started to mark things up. But instead, what Paul is saying is, I redeemed you. I freed you to live in my kingdom. And I'm going to give you the strength, and I'm going to give you the endurance, and I'm going to give you the hope, and I'm going to give you the joy, and I'm going to give you the grace to live according to my way. But you've got to trust me at every step. You've got to recognize who freed you. You've got to recognize who is king. You've got to recognize the difference between the light and the darkness. And I will take you on a journey that you will never be able to take for yourself. Our vision statement is creating environments where people encounter Jesus and journey together. I want to close with just telling you where that came from. Because for many of you, you may have never heard this. Um, I was a pastor at Heritage Baptist Church, 2004. I was called as a pastor. Um, About 2008, we were out of money, out of time, paying rent on an enormously expensive building that we could not afford. Now, I say enormously expensive was $3,000 a month. You go, that's not too much? Yeah, except it was uh, for what we had. Uh, It was a converted boat boat store. That's literally what it was. Um, we We were just buried with stuff. We were living day to day, and I remember as clear as day, uh, I had a dream. I emailed the elders, uh, the elders of our congregation immediately after it. I had a dream where I walked into the church building, it, and, um, and I, I was just crying because we couldn't afford this. Do I need to go somewhere else? Is this not God's will? What did I mess up? Um, what, where, where did we go wrong? What was happening? And, and a voice, and I'm not saying that God was speaking to me and I received any kind of revelation or anything. It's probably just my subconscious working. All right? But a voice said to me, where are you? Be content where I put you. And I argued. I was like, I was like no, no, we need to be this and we need to be that. And we need to build this. And we where are you? Are you content where I put you? And I remember in the dream, just standing in the entrance of that building... Of that, of that sanctuary, this ugly eggshell white sanctuary. It was disgustingly ugly, just so plain and boring. <laughs> and I remember standing in it and seeing the people of our congregation kind of appearing in and out. You know how your dreams work. People just pop in, the, in and out of your dreams. And I saw the building starting to change and stuff, and then I woke up. I immediately emailed the elders. I was like, I don't know what this means. And Greg Jones... <laughs> Greg Jones emailed me. He says, maybe it means to be content. <laughs> wow. Profound. But the reality was I was so desperate, so trying to do so much on my own strength and my own ability. And I finally said, okay, God, we're going to be content. I'm going to be content with what you've given us. And, and I'm not saying that, that I did it of force of will, but by going to the congregation and saying, we, here, here's where God has put us, this is what we're doing, all the things we aren't, doing work, aren't working, let's just lock down, let's be about the gospel. Let's just, we saw that place transformed, and I was going through uh, pictures this week uh, of that building, and, how, and we transformed the sanctuary, and we tore out a wall, and we put in glass doors, and, and transformed it. It was warm, and it was comfortable, and, it, and it, that church grew to the point that the building couldn't contain us, and we still had no money, but we, we, the building couldn't contain us, and then when the time came, God led us into the relationship with Grace Baptist, which then merged in 2010 and formed Bedford Road. And, and all of that that happened, 
I really believe was God strengthening us and giving patience and endurance along the way. And out of that came this vision statement. Creating environments where people encounter Jesus and journey together. It doesn't say that we make disciples because we don't believe that we do that. It says that we create space, we create environments where there's an opportunity to meet Jesus and then to walk with others who know him. To have a relationship with the Savior of the world. Our job as a church is not to manufacture Christians. Our job as a church is to create a space where the Holy Spirit introduces people to Jesus. And then they walk with him and we follow him and we journey together. It's messy. It's disorganized. It's not efficient. Oh man, is it not efficient. But it takes all of the responsibility of the work of of the gospel. It recognizes the authority of Jesus and it calls us to just walk with him. And then as we walk with him, he strengthens us, he renews us, he owns us, he enlightens our path. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Father, as, as believers, as Christians, as disciples of Jesus, you have done something we could never do for ourselves in, in redeeming us, freeing us from the darkness and bringing us into citizenship in your kingdom strengthening us, empowering us, giving us joy and patience. Lord, help us to hear you. To truly not rely on our own abilities, but on yours. To be patient with ourselves as we learn to rely upon you. Lord, to be patient with others, knowing that we all walk at different paces, all take different strides, all struggle with different things, but are called to walk together with Jesus. Lord, help us to keep our faces turned toward Him, following Him until one day we step from this life into His presence for eternity. Father, we thank You that You forgive our sins. You transform us. Lord, help us to remember who is at work.